And in these intensive retreats, we would tear open these defenses and talk about who we were underneath. We would be confronted, even against our will, of what was underneath all that. And that was huge for me because I think I somehow believed, maybe based off of Christianity, that underneath I was a sinner and I was afraid to find out what was underneath when I took off my masks and I really let myself be seen because I knew there was some shit in there. But the most amazing thing was that I began to discover my inner true goodness. It starts with just taking that leap. Man, you have to work hard. You have to be incredibly smart. Choose something that even if it fails, even if it fails you are going to be proud of it. doesn't matter how badly you got beaten down. Be kind, be kind, be kind. Become a better person, a better leader, a better business. Go through that. <laughs> I'm Samuel Donner, and this is Finding Founders. Could you quickly introduce yourself in two or three sentences about you? Alicia Flecky. And I have a eco-friendly bohemian clothing business and I teach women's sacred femininity or sacred goddess practices. Something that we kind of glossed over was your experiences within the spiritual community that really impacted you in a lot of ways. It seems both negatively and positively. And I'd love to, to delve in at the start of how you got involved in this community or found out about it. Yes. So I was already studying yoga in Thailand and India. And I began to hear about a teacher that was known for very being very opening on the heart. And many people I knew were going to see him or having just come from there and just raving like, oh, it's so beautiful and so much heart and so much love. And it piqued my interest. I had been already learning a lot about spiritual masters and I wanted to meet one. I wanted to know what that experience was like. And I had already met another one, but this one felt different to me. This one felt like it was really calling me. What does it mean to be a spiritual master? I threw out that term kind of like facetiously to this guy, the spiritual guru that I, I talked to last week. And he said, I'm not a spiritual master. I'm a student like you. And uh, anyone that claims that they are a master is most likely not. Um, <laughs> very guru thing to say. <laughs> uh, but what, 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 does that, what does that term mean to you? That's such a great question. And I, I would agree with your, your other interviewee that uh, if it's self-proclaimed, you might want to raise a couple red flags. <laughs> and to be honest, a lot of the ideas that I built up around what spirituality is, what it means to be enlightened, what it means to be a spiritual master, have all been torn down. So to be quite honest with you, I don't really feel like I can answer that question. I know that there's, you know, spiritual worlds, astral worlds, causal level, where people can have consciousness and awareness and move things or influence things. And some might say that's spiritual mastery, or maybe it's just the mastery over your own heart and your own body. Or at least a level of spiritual mastery. Right. But nowadays, I don't know how I feel about enlightenment. It doesn't pique my interest in the same way. And uh, and it's not something that I feel as drawn to as I maybe once did. This idea of enlightenment is sometimes held like a carrot on a stick to keep people engaged. It can be abuse. And I think it does exist. But am I really interested in striving my whole life for that? Or do I just want to live a good life that fulfills me? And that's kind of where I'm at now. Mm -hmm. 
how do you start to look for the spiritual master, this guru that you are drawn to? So I flew over to India and I was with an ex-boyfriend at the time and I had seen huge changes in him just after he had been sitting with this guy for a month. So what I mean by sitting with, it means that in, he usually gives a talk, which is called satsang each morning. It's like an hour and a half or something, two hours. And there's a lot of singing and a lot of beautiful experience that goes into that. After he was with him for like a month, he was a very different person. And I, I was like, wow, I want to meet this, this guy. And so pretty soon after I got to India, I got back up to Rishikesh and I, yeah, I, I walked into the satsang hall for the first time. What did you see and, and what did you hear? What did you smell? What did it look like? It honestly felt to me like walking into some kind of a little piece of heaven. It was all white marble with uh, beautiful stained glass kind of designs on the ceiling. There was a huge window in the back that overlooked the Ganga, the Ganges River. And there were monkeys everywhere running all around the ashram, like up and down the fences. And sometimes they'd make so much noise, they'd shake the windows. And they were actually quite a scary element. But the room was filled with people all kind of sitting quietly. And there was music that was just like, just never heard such heartful, you know, connected, beautiful music. And, you know, I had come from a Christian background where worship, worship service, where we would sing these songs was really a big deal and really beautiful and used to make me cry even as a little kid. And so I felt in a way I was walking into church, you know, like this serene environment, peace. Everybody looked so spiritual, like sitting there in meditation on the floor. Of course, years later, I would know half of those people and I'd know how unspiritual we all were <laughs> together, you know. But, you know, it was just like so peaceful. And I think a deep part of me really longs for that experience of people sitting together and just singing to God, like whatever language, even almost whatever God, you know, it's just there's something so beautiful about singing towards divinity. And these musicians were like fantastic. So it was already from the minute you walked in, it was just like a trans transportive experience. Who do you start talking to while you're there? Well, thankfully, I already had a, a good group of community there that had come from other schools that I had studied at previously. So it felt it felt very relatable to me. I knew some people. I was able to to settle in, I think, quite quickly. I do also remember the moment when the guru first walked in. He's he's short and he looks like Brazilian Jesus. <laughs> he's got like a long gray beard, long gray curly hair the warmest brown eyes you've ever seen and just like radiating such kindness, you know, and light behind his eyes, sweetness. You know, he walks in the room and everybody stands up and we all kind of do the namaste and wait, he walks over to the chair and then he sits down and then we all sit down. And yeah, that's part of this dynamic. You know, it's that's the kind of part that's less easy to understand, I think, in the West, which is why I often don't talk about it. But in the East, in India, and in a lot of Asian countries, this is like, it's very natural for many people to have this dynamic. What is that dynamic? Guru-disciple. And interestingly, for me, it, it was also natural because I had been raised in the Christian church. So for me, some part of my psyche saw him almost as like a Jesus, really. Because that is the relationship that is encouraged, you know, in the church, is this relationship with 
God as your teacher, as your master. Being a devotee is actually one of the most exquisite experiences and feelings that I ever had. It's very natural and delicious and beautiful to, I think, feel that devotion. Why? I think devotion comes from a place in us that is mostly untouched by society today. There's not many reasons to feel devotional, unless maybe you have kids or you feel devotional to your partner, or your family. But when you talk about spiritual devotion, it just takes over. It's from another deeper place inside that you know is so pure and so beautiful. It's like our treasure. It's our treasure that we have. So my treasure was to be able to be a devotee. So like, it sounds like the beginning of that relationship started as soon as you saw him. How did it begin to deepen? Well, he had many great programs to do. Self-knowledge retreats that we would do, also influenced by Osho. And they were basically also influenced by a system called Pathwork, um, Carl Jung. So basically it was kind of like looking at your masks and the ways that we... Um, show up in a false way because of our defenses in the world. And in these intensive retreats, we would tear open these defenses and talk about who we were underneath. We would be confronted, even against our will, of what was underneath all that. And that was huge for me because I think I somehow believed, maybe based off of Christianity, that underneath I was a sinner. I was actually a bad person. So I needed to try to be good. I needed to ask for forgiveness. I needed to atone, you know, this kind of way of thinking. And I was afraid to find out what was underneath when I took off my masks. And I really let myself be seen because I knew there was some shit in there. But the most amazing thing was that I began to discover my inner true goodness, my, my inner real love. It's really almost the best way I can put it. Like a place where... It's not conditioned and it's not trying or efforting. It's just there. And I honestly, it took me years to get to that place where I was like, oh, fuck, like I'm actually, I have this inside. Like this is natural to me. So that was one of the gifts that his work gave me. So I participated in these retreats, these intensives. I would attend the seasons in Rishikesh where I would be there every day, you know, in the satsang. So he knew, you know, he knew me by name. I had a couple uh, private meetings with him as well over the years. Initially, you're you're just someone in the crowd. When did you feel you had like a, a, a more personal relationship? Well, I took initiation like within a few weeks of meeting him. It's a ritual you do to become um, spiritually connected to that lineage. It's just a mantra. You give an offering of like food or sweets and you give some flowers and then he'll chant mantra and then he gives you like an initiation. So that was my first like, like I'm here. I'm going to, I want to do this work. And that work and his community fit me on so many levels. It felt totally right. I had no, no doubts. And then I think on a personal level, I didn't know if he noticed me. I mean, it's a very weird thing to be like, totally devoted and engaged with someone you never talk to. It's very weird. It sounds like a parasocial relationship a little bit. It feels weird because I don't really think of parasocial relationships being physical, but it seems like this one was. 
Yeah, I used to dream about him being a celebrity, you know, and, and there was a part of I think a lot of it is just like what's already in our psyche. So already in my psyche was this projection of Jesus. Already in my psyche was this idea of celebrity. And he became this kind of like Jesus celebrity, like totally perfect. I thought he never did anything wrong. I thought he walked in perfect integrity. I remember one time I saw him accidentally knock his water glass and it like shocked me. I was like, what? <laughs> he can, he wasn't present. You know, like I had all these ideas of like, I really thought I was in the presence of like some kind of perfection. And also I was really opening. I was really exposing myself in ways that I desperately needed and wanted, but didn't know it, you know, like connecting to other people and coming down to earth a little bit more, like letting go. There was a kind of spiritual superiority thing happening. How did that materialize in the relationships that you had? Like what, what was like, it was there a moment that, that these, these teachings were producing that, that effect that you're describing? Yeah, we did a lot of specific work on like family, you know, so I, I remember in one retreat, I had this cathartic moment with my mother, you know, and it was in my own mind, but I was like, it was like a catharsis. And then after the catharsis, I felt my heart spontaneously feel real affection for her. And I, I felt like, God, she's so sweet. It was so crazy. It was really true. Like as soon as I let that, I let this thing out, I let out this big scream. And then immediately after I was like, God, she's so sweet. And the amazing thing is that never left me. Even though, of course, you know, the relationship isn't perfect, but we're doing so much better. And I really healed so much of my mother wound, my father wound, you know, still working on sister wound. And I have a brother as well that I think we're just generally good, but really in-depth work with family stuff. So these are having actual ramifications that are positive across a lot of your relationships. Absolutely. And that was part of the work that I love so much. It was almost like after traveling in India and Thailand, and I had mentioned before a little bit of this, like you're living in almost a spiritual bubble world where you're not exactly connected to reality. And then landing at his feet was suddenly like, oh, guess what? We're going to talk about your parents now. Like all of you guys that have been running away from life back home or, you know, whatever's going on. Now we're going to talk about what do you do for work? What are you doing? How is your relationship with your mom? You know, like, how, do you have kids? How do you treat your kids? Like it was so, and that what made me more engaged and made me trust it more because I felt like, yeah, this is right. Doing spiritual work can happen on so many levels, but it's so important to stay connected to your, your family and your life and like, and not to lose those relationships and to work on them. It sounds like all of these awakenings are extremely positive and soul feeding. Is there a shift that, that ever happened at a certain point? Yeah, there was a shift actually. First off, I had this big thing about him being like perfect. And there was a moment when I I'm not sure, quite sure even how it happened, but somehow in my psyche, it was like that just started to dissolve. I remember showing up one season and he didn't look like he looked to me before. He used to always look like glowing in this chair, almost like light was like beaming off of him. And when I looked at him, he just looked like a normal man sitting in a chair, just had some wise, interesting things to say. And I couldn't look at him anymore. I didn't love him in the same way as before. When I thought he was perfect, 
I could give him all my love and devotion. But when I saw him as human, it was like I wasn't interested. What changed? I don't know, other than many things used to happen within his school of work. Big shifts like this used to happen to everybody. Many miraculous things were happening to people. And this was my story. Was there any other points where you felt like that fallibility? The big unveiling happened in 2018 when we discovered that he wasn't who or how he presented to us. Someone within the, the Sangha is the spiritual community. One of his close female disciples had been carrying a secret for many years that she wasn't able to carry anymore. And she, she told the truth about him from an experience they had maybe seven or I think it was eight to 10 years earlier that she had had a secret sexual relationship with him and she was married at the time to another one of his top disciples. So they had gone to him for couples counseling and he ended up in a weird way, almost grooming her into this like sexual relationship. And she thought she was just having spiritual healing. The context of this is that he told us he was celibate. That was always part of his story. He was a celibate guru. During this process of this unveiling where you know, we began hearing rumors like, okay, wait, is this true? Is this not true? How could he do this? How could he not have told us? There was a period of like a week when I was waiting for him to come out and do what I thought he'd do, which was, okay, I did this. It was wrong. I messed up. I'm sorry. And I need to figure this out. I'm not perfect. You know, I also have my shadow to work on. A big part of his training was shadow work. So I was doing seven years by that point of shadow work. And my longing and many others, like hundreds of us, we all wanted to hear him say, I'm like you guys. I mess up too. And I need to take responsibility, just like I've been asking and teaching you all to take responsibility. And I need to say sorry, and I need to reflect and think about what in me made me do this. You know, why am I, why am I like this? And he couldn't do that. What I saw instead was I saw a man clinging to the role of the guru. And that's when I realized he was attached to that role, just how I was attached to him in that role. I saw that he was into it. And that kind of freaked me out. I think it freaked a lot of us out. And we also collectively realized, I think as a group, that he couldn't exist without us. He was who he was because we made him who he was. It was a co-created relationship. And that was hugely eye-opening for me. I realized, wow, you know, he's not necessarily the one with all the power. Like, we have power. I have power. The day I found out about his sexual secret affair, I remember I, was, I sat on the couch for like four or five hours just staring at a wall because it was so earth-shattering for me. I was just like, wow. You know, this is after seven years of never being let down. 
you know, he knocks a glass of water. That's one thing. But seven years of never being let down and constantly reinforcing faith and trust. And, you know, my journey's unfolding. It was just like, wow, I can't believe this is real. And then, you know, that happened. And I remember I sat on the couch for four or five hours, kind of just like what just happened, staring at a wall. And when I stood up, I felt bigger than I was before. And I felt power come back into my body. Mm. I didn't know how much I had been giving away until mm. it came back to me. Did you or anyone else ever confront him? Many people confronted him. I personally have not. I would like to go back to India at some point, And I don't know what I would say or do. Because I also see him as human now. Just some dude that grew up in like a poor family in Brazil that did a lot of ayahuasca, <laughs> you know, and he did his crazy Osho, crazy spiritual journeys and really had some amazing skills and psychologist. I mean, he was an amazing person. Because of him, I was able to have an experience that I could never have had otherwise. I, I saw my own capacity for devotion because of the work he did so that he could play that role. So I see him as a human. And if I went back to see him, I'd want to say thank you to the human, not to the guru, but to the human being that was there. But I don't really want to contribute more because he did suffer a lot. He had dozens of intense confrontations and was physically attacked and condemned by his whole nation and lost thousands of followers. I mean, he, he almost died from the shock of the whole thing, you know, like he was, mm -hmm. I think he suffered enough, honestly. So I don't really want to add to his suffering. And I don't even feel like he's a part of my story anymore, other than what I've learned. Is he still teaching people? He continued. He almost barely stopped. He took a break for, I think, like mm -hmm. maybe three to six months or something. And then he kept going. And now when I, if I, I don't follow him in any platforms anymore, but if I see something, I just don't see the same thing like I used to, you know, I just don't. Do you think having that image of perfection was an integral to you initially going through that heart opening? Do you think if someone admitted that I am a man and just a man and taught the same things that you would have been as committed to your own journey? No, I don't. And I think that's uh, somehow it was like a hidden trap in my psyche, maybe most likely from Christianity, where it's like, no, you only deserve my utmost love and devotion. If you are perfect, only God deserves that. And so in a weird way, it really worked for me, the whole, the whole experience, because it helped me to kind of unlock that part of my psyche that really, you know, couldn't just appreciate the mundane people, mundane life, you know, daily life. Um, Looking at it, like, um, and, and uh, I literally try to empathize with everyone. And so hopefully that this empathy experiment isn't like traumatic in any way, but can I try to empathize with him for a second? Oh, and yes, try to yes, understand him? please. Okay. So like if I'm him mm. and I know that I'm flawed and I've done bad things, but I'm still trying to help 
as many people as possible is lying a necessary evil mm. to open the minds and hearts of those that I'm trying to teach. Mm. Do you think at some level that's why he fought so hard for that identity to be perfect because he knew if it eroded, he wouldn't be able to have the same positive influence that he has had for so many years? I wouldn't credit him as fighting to keep the guru identity to serve people. I think he mm-hmm. wanted it for other reasons, but I don't know. I'm not in his body. Does it matter? I think it kind of does. I think that the transmission would be different. There's a different transmission from someone who's completely unattached as compared to someone who's doing it because they're also like enjoying being in this role or enjoying having this image, enjoying having this adoration. We're also at the same time kind of in a time of reckoning when like a lot of stuff is coming out about our our leaders, our nation's heroes or, you know, whoever it was. And we're learning, oh, right. Like they're totally fallible. And I think it leaves us disoriented, not knowing where to turn because we're so conditioned or maybe historically programmed, you know, to think that like someone who is, should be the leader should be perfect. The one that we deify. And that's why I'm kind of big on the divine feminine stuff, because it's so much about coming back down to earth and just being with your brokenness and with your humanity and with your faults. And it's not trying to transcend, but it's just being with what is. I guess I can say that's kind of my hope for the future is that we slowly start letting go of the need for people to be perfect in order to deserve our admiration or devotion and also to lead. I, I really like this quote, which funny enough, my, my old guru used to say, he used to say, perfection only visits this realm. It doesn't stay. We're here to be human. That's why we came here probably. Thank you so much for listening. If you haven't already, make sure to subscribe, rate the podcast five stars, and share with a friend. If you have any questions or comments, DM us at Finding Founders Podcast on Instagram, LinkedIn, or Facebook. Finding Founders is produced and hosted by me, Samuel Donner. Our chief of staff and operations is Jessica Lynn. Our audio editing team lead is Adrian Tapia. Support from Irene Van Berkel, Matt Fernandez, Renee B. Cannon, Sophia Donner, Maura Lynch, Zoe Maddox. Ashley Jimenez, Michael Chung, Nicholas Guzman, Aaron Devereaux, Sanessa Gisley, and Lois Choi. Our outreach and research lead is Kenny Ong, with support from Sarah Hobson, Melody Sopani, Cherise Tan, Jake Wiley, Ibada Thrive, and Mecca Shelton. Our writing team lead is Elizabeth Bowen, with support from Abigail Azardia, Elise Caldwell, Jake Wiley, Jordan Ortiz, and Sanessa Gisley. Our design team lead is Shruti Ramanand with support from Sohail Amatya, Tiffany Dang, Jonathan Wass, and Diana Marie Kandaza. To see more of what we're up to, subscribe to our newsletter at findingfounders.co. Thanks again for listening and see you next week.